Hi everyone, Duncan Green here on From Poverty to Power. Time for a podcast, and with me I have one of the uh, stars of uh, the Oxfam firmament, John Kitui, who is country director in Kenya, which is where I am at the moment. And we're sitting together, he's just had to watch me eat breakfast, which can't have been pleasant. Um, and we've been talking about uh, the changing role of the INGO uh, in a country like Kenya. So welcome, John. Thank you very much, Duncan. So I guess we better start with um, the thing that everyone knows, which is that there's a horrendous drought in East Africa. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing as Oxfam in Kenya? And then we can take it from there. Yes, thanks, Duncan, for having me for this podcast. Um, so we, from the year 2020, we've had a very bad drought uh, in Kenya that has been building up with the four failed rain seasons now um, that has led to... Uh, in Kenya alone, about 4.1 million people um, affected by the, by, by the drought um, who are requiring food and water aid to survive. Um, it, across the whole, in East Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, um, and Kenya, is about 20 million people uh, who, are, who are food insecure. Um, and so Oxfam has been working with local actors to try and provide uh, life-saving uh, humanitarian response through multi-purpose, multi-purpose uh, cash transfers. Uh, we've done that from the year 2020 uh, through to 2021, and now we're continuing to do that in 2022. Uh, it was really a continuation of COVID-19, locust invasion, and then the drought, and uh, of course the war in Ukraine, and this complex cause of the food insecurity. Uh, that, that, uh, so locusts, COVID, drought, and Ukraine. Ukraine invasion. Yes. All come together in a sort of toxic cocktail. Within a context of Climate change really as a as a as a precipitator of some of these shocks. Wow. Um, so I think it's a it's a, it's a it's a very dire situation that we see. It's projected that the short trains between uh, September, October, November will also fail. So I think we're going to see a five successive uh, failed rain season, and we could probably see some famine uh, and uh, deaths from starvation uh, in the in the Horn and East Africa uh, if if we do not take actions to save lives uh, promptly. That's horrendous. Now, the, the, the actions you were talking about um, also incorporate a new level of localization. So I'd be interested to hear how that's going and what you, the division of labor between local players and Oxfam. Yeah, so Oxfam has been in Kenya since 1963, and we had massive operations, field offices, a lot of uh, teams on the ground doing direct responses. But with time, we've seen a growth of local actors who are just community-based organizations, local civil society organizations who are on the front line. Kenya also is a, is a country with devolved governments, and so there's huge responsibility that the county governments at the local level are taking. Um, so Oxfam has shifted its focus to more of support local humanitarian leadership by supporting local actors, local civil societies, local government, local private sector to take a more proactive role in the response than traditional. Um, and we've, we closed, a few years ago, we closed our field offices in Trukana and Wajia, and now we've purely just worked with local actors to do the response. So uh, the, the main role of the local actors, because they know their context better, they know their hot, the, the big the pockets of devastation and misery, where they can do responses, they take the leadership on mobilization, identifying the most vulnerable houses, uh, making sure they are registered and doing the cash transfers themselves. And then Oxfam provides the technical support with the multi-purpose uh, cash transfer because it's a very technical area that you need to do it very well. We also su- provide support with protection, safeguarding, risk management, 
uh, as well and facilitation of linkages with private actors like Safaricom so that we can do the cash transfer using mobile mobile money. Um, so we provide that back and support. But across the 10 worst affected counties, we are really working with the Asal Humanitarian Network, which is a network of about 30... Asal is the uh, semi-arid lands. Arid and semi-arid lands, yes. Thank you. So it's the Asal Humanitarian okay. Network. Uh, that then do most of the, the response. And it's been, it's been amazing. So you could drive across these, the, the areas in northern Kenya and not see an Oxfam logo? There is nowhere. You'll see Oxfam logo, but in, in partnership with local actors. Okay. Uh, but it's mainly local actors that are now doing, doing most of the, of the response, both from COVID-19 and now with the, with the drought response. And when you say safeguarding, I mean, what do you mean by safeguarding in this context? Yeah, so when you look at the, some of this programming like cash transfers or any humanitarian aid per se, you're really having people with power inter interfacing with people who are very vulnerable and, and, and desperate. And I think we've seen across the world, whether it's in DRC or other countries, where people are taking advantage of, especially women and girls. So one of the key programming issues in multipurpose cash transfers is to make sure that the women and the men and the girls are safe uh, during those cash transfers and the people who are coming in to register or to give the cash transfers do not take advantage of uh, the, the vulnerable women and the desperate women for sexual exploitation or abuse or corruption or asking for bribes before they are put on the cash transfers. So the safeguarding is a very, very key element to that. And we do that by first of all training the people who are involved and everything else, but also just putting in place the feedback mechanisms and complaints mechanisms for communities to to be able to whistleblow to complain if anyone ever asked them for a favor or money to be put on the cash transfer lists. And the cash transfers uh, you do with Safaricom, how does that work? So once we've mobilized the households, there is a verification exercise that happens by an independent team to verify that the people who have been put on the team on the on the on the on the, on the cash transfer list are. Uh, deserving, they have a mobile phone. If they don't have a mobile phone or a SIM card, uh, the program buys for them a SIM card. Uh, then they can go to an M-Pesa place and they can be able to transact. And then we reach out to Safaricom and ask them to give us the ability to do mass uh, cash transfers to these households. And sometimes they actually waive the fee as part of their corporate social responsibility. So it actually serves uh, donor funds going to the sum of those costs. And then they facilitate the cash transfer. So the money actually leaves uh, the bank account and goes to individuals' mobile phones, and then they can go to their local Mpesa shop or withdraw cash, or they can actually just do the mo through mobile money procure foods in the market using Mpesa. And Kenya is a hotspot for mobile money, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And even in the places that are worst affected in remote areas, people have mobile phones, and there is Mpesa there, and there is mobile network. So it's really been efficient. Uh, but also it saves a lot of the administrative costs so that more, as much money goes to households to help them, to cushion them as much as possible. What sort of amounts are we talking about for, for, for a particular family? So it's about uh, 8,000 Kenya shillings, which translates to about $80 per month, or month. give or give or give or so, take. Uh, which uh, buys a fair amount of food, even with food prices absolutely going up. Okay, yes, yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, I'd love to keep talking about that, but I actually wanted to get on to another aspect, which is... Your, you were talking to me earlier about uh, Oxfam becoming an advocacy-only um, uh, office, and there's a number of these within Oxfam now who are saying, okay, we've got to move away from that service delivery model, and what we want to do is start influencing the wider system. Um, and you gave a couple of examples. You were talking about being operational in an influencing way. So talk to me about that. Um, yeah, so as we've, as we've promoted local humanitarian leadership, and I think as we're seeing local actors really stepping up, both civil society, local governments, private sector, 
uh, as we see them take over uh, most of the operational work, at, service delivery work at the local level. Uh, I think as Oxfam we've been shifting towards more of influencing as a country office and we think we can add more value by influencing the systems that keep people poor and marginalized and worsen inequality uh, as much as possible. And there are so many ways of looking at influencing. So one of the influencing works as you're saying we do is the advocacy and the campaigns as well and we're doing that on debt for example, on good governance and we speak up, we're doing that on trying to bring the ongoing drought on the on the national agenda but also on the global agenda so there's an element of that as well but as we've and we'll come to that and we'll come to that <laughs> but one of the ways that we're also doing influencing is through modeling a very different way of doing operations so for example the local humanitarian leadership has been something that the international community humanitarian community has been speaking for a very very long time there is the grand bargain there is a charter for change but there is stereotypical narratives that have frustrated the implementation of the ground of local humanitarian leadership. Narratives like local actors have no capacity, they cannot be trusted, they have no integrity, they are corrupt, uh, they will not be able to manage a large amount of money. And it's racist. racist yes, it's very racist narratives, yeah. but it keeps the INGOs power within INGOs so that they can receive the money and be very tokenistic about the local humanitarian leadership. But the boldness that the Oxfam and others within the Kenya Cash Consortium, including ACTED and Concern Worldwide, have done is to trust partners to take the leadership on local humanitarian responses. And we've given them a lot of funds. We've provided technical support, of course. We've helped them build their own capacity to deliver, to manage risks, to make sure that the community, the complaints mechanisms work. And they've not disappointed at all. And the more we've done that from COVID-19, locust uh, invasion, and then now ongoing, the ongoing drought, the more we've seen that other INGOs and actually donors appreciate that actually local humanitarian leadership can work. And the ASAL humanitarian network is now invited in a lot of spaces at the national level, coordination level, campaigns level, to actually be able to be on the leadership of, around influencing as well. And we're seeing now donors actually having conversations internally about how can we move some, more, more money to the ASAL humanitarian network or similar uh, similar local uh, local local humanitarian uh, networks. Now, so, hold on a minute. I mean, a skeptic would say you are describing turkeys voting for Christmas, right? Because if if the money goes directly to local partners, yeah. um, the critique of localization has always been how would our NGOs uh, encourage a system which would cut them out of the money? So how does this? And you're a country director with big responsibilities to pay wages and keep an office going. So t talk to me about. Is this not a problem for you if you're successful? So five years ago, or seven years ago to be precise, in 2015, Oxfam made us a decision to close their field offices, but also because they wanted local actors to take over most of the humanitarian leadership and focus on influencing. So it's, it's a space that Oxfam has been wanting to get out of business anyway, believing that there's plenty of local actors to, to, to take the leadership. So the influencing by modeling how local humanitarian leadership can work helps the sector actually by trying to reinvent what INGO's role can be. And I say that because when you look at the, the, the inequality, the poverty, the misery that we have around and the challenge ahead of us, it requires many hands on the deck. So even if local actors take full leadership of the humanitarian response, there will be plenty of spaces and work for the INGO's to do. And I think we need as many hands on the deck, but doing different things. So I think as Oxfam, we are trying to, this 
to figure out what we can do better uh, as, as local actors take their leadership. And I think there will be plenty for us to, to really do because we have a lot of work to do to end inequality and poverty. So you were mentioning a couple of examples of what I would call sort of pure advocacy. Yeah. Um, some of the laws that have been passed on agriculture and livestock. So maybe you could just talk us through what's going on in the in that wider Kenyan political scene, which you think that's where Oxfam should be located now, right? Yes. So I think the biggest challenge that we see for the foreseeable future for Oxfam in Kenya, or for the Kenyan context, is the climate change and the impact of climate change on inequality. And the worst inequality will happen in, 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 in access to food, both safe uh, quality uh, and sufficient food uh, for households level. So um, the, the role of government, of course, is a very, very important one. And some of the influencing work has been gone towards good governance, the challenge of debt, because you know the issue of debt has crippled the government's ability to even just provide protection, social protection on its own people. So we have campaigns on, on, on that front, uh, on that front as well. Uh, but the other element that we're looking at is around the, from a systemic lens, some of the laws that are being passed that are going to cripple access to food by smallholder farmers. There, is, there seems to be a very deliberate effort to kill smallholder farmers in Kenya. And I can give examples of some of the laws that have been passed. So uh, we saw the, live, uh, the livestock uh, bill passed that criminalized beekeeping. 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 And we know that Kenyans, especially in the arid and semi-arid lands, have done beekeeping for many, many reasons. Not only commercial, actually, probably commercial is the least of their interest. They do it for their, for, for, as their food, as a preservative, as medicine. They do it for their own traditions and rituals. They do it for, as gifts. They do it for, but also they do it for income, to sell on the market for, for their income. So the government passed, the parliament passed a, a, a law that uh, criminalizes beekeeping because uh, they want to commercialize it. So it's like the capitalist capture of, of, of small-holding beekeeping, really, because they are looking at beekeeping from a GDP-maximizing uh, perspective, which is wrong. Um, and so as Oxfam, we've been trying to work with partners to advocate around uh, against that as well. Oh, hold was, on a minute. That was really... You, you threw in a really interesting idea there. So so this is a traditional modernization narrative that yes. we need to be able to trade in order to get foreign exchange and uh, commercialize agriculture. Exactly. And this is all very backward stuff where people just have a couple of bee and... If they don't have get certified, that will damage the whole industry. And you're saying that's actually a, the wrong perspective. Yes, as the old adage goes, we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. So when 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 people who want to maximize GDP look at all this honey that's happening, and no one is commercializing it, people are keeping it or exchanging it or eating it, they see it as a loss of of of, of productivity in the GDP sense of the word. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, a wrong, it's a wrong way of, of looking at it because honey and beekeeping plays other purposes other than GDP. And the same goes for seeds, you were saying earlier, right? Yes. So there is a law that, uh, an act of parliament that was also passed on the Seeds and Plant Varieties Act. Um, and this, the, the, the amendments really criminalized what they call selling of non-certified seeds. But when you look at how the act defined selling, it defined it selling as exchange, as buttering, as storage, as displaying with the intention to sell. But basically what they are criminalizing is that communities, old tradition of exchanging traditional seeds within their communities with each other or harvesting and keeping part of that seed for the next harvest season, uh, planting season is a criminal offense, it's punishable by law. There is a jail term and a monetary fine attached to it, or actually you can get both. Uh, I forget now if it's one year or two years jail, but it's a very punitive law that's actually meant to discourage this 
resilient way of how smallholder farmers um, have done it. Um, but also when you look at the Act, the Act provides for discovery of plant and seed varieties. But what we, our interpretation of that is opening up for, to multinationals, who are of course the lobbyists behind this Act, to come and discover traditional seeds. We're, we're, we're putting inverted commas around discover, I imagine. Yes, yes, yes okay. you're putting inverted commas, because people have been using them for millennia. Exactly. So <laughs> a multinational company can come and go and discover a traditional seed and say, yeah, I've discovered this seed and put a patent behind it. And then smallholder farmers will have now to buy from these commercial multinational companies, seed companies, for them to go plant seeds, seeds that they've been exchanging with each other for millennia. So I think. So is this an? I mean, can I push you on this? Is it, are people actually being fined and put in jail, or is this just a possible threat? No, it is not a possible threat. I think if it's 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 it's, it's law and it's therefore enforceable. But is it being implemented? Are farmers being dragged into jail because they've swapped some seeds? So. It's, it's just an act of parliament that has just been passed. Okay. And I think the, the fear that, as long as it's law, I think the, the concern is that when you look at the systemic issue as well, it serves as a deterrence. Yeah. Because I think with time, people will be told, ah, if you sell these seeds, you will not be able to, to you'll, you'll go to jail or you'll be fine. And therefore, people stop sharing seeds, people stop planting those seeds. That's a chilling effect. And then it has a chilling effect. So whether it's as a deterrence, I think for me it's already negative enough. Yeah. But even the law itself being existing from a systemic lens of, of view, it's already wrong in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure to emphasize that and to send a strong message, there'll be someone who'll be arrested for selling seeds on the market and then they'll be thrown behind the bars or they'll be fined uh, exorbitantly. So we, we feel that that is one way that the government is actually driving food insecurity by not appreciating the value of smallholder farming. When actually in Kenya, I think about 80% of our food we eat comes from smallholder farmers. And how does Oxfam plan to do influencing around the, the, the seed law, for example? So uh, the best way to do it is through uh, movements we, we have. Uh, so we have um, a movement that is called Okoa Uchumi Coalition. And Okoa Uchumi is a Swahili word for saying, save the economy. Uh, and one of, the, one of the ways we've been having conversations with them is about democratization of the economy of Kenya. We have this economic singularity that really privileges capitalism as the only model of economic. So you look at forests from a, from a GDP maximization lens, you look at agriculture, you look at traditional seeds, you look at beekeeping as well. So this economic singularity is our biggest threat as a country. And we think through movements and coalitions like the Okoa coalition where Oxfam is part of, that we can be able to try to push for an economic plurality that yes, we, capitalism has its place. I think there's a, there's a place for productivity, but then also can we allow smallholder farmers to continue to provide food for subsistence and to share with each other in their traditional way um, as this, much as possible in, in a way that provides resilience because I think that's more resilient uh, as opposed to monoculture. Because we're also seeing in, 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 the, same, in the same strain of, of capitalism is the use of herbicides and pesticides that is actually decimating traditional food crops and plant varieties because people are applying herbicides to just have a monoculture of maize plantation. Or we are applying insecticides and they are killing sea, uh, insects that communities have been eating, insects like termites and others. In, in my village, people are eating termites. The termites are no longer there, but it's because people are applying uh, pesticides to kill anything that moves so that you can you can have your monoculture thriving. So I think all these practices are going to contribute towards food insecurity and unless we really have a paradigm shift in, in our view of agriculture, not from a productivity perspective, I think we are also losing. Um, Last question. I mean, this is fantastic, John. We could go on all day, but 
Um, this pure advocacy, as I call it anyway, yeah. um, of you know, targeting the new laws, is that easy to get funding for? Because in the end, you need funding for staff, you need funding for you know, bits of paper or websites and all the rest of it. How do you fund that sort of work rather than drought response? So one of the dysfunctions of the funding of humanitarian development world is it's biased towards service delivery. Uh, so if you do a lot of gifts, giving people full family inputs and everything else, it's very easy to raise money, money for that. Once you start looking at the problems as systemic and wanting to change laws and try to enable laws that thrive in resilience, then you run into very few donors who are willing to fund that, and we're trying to really mobilize resources through that as well. One of the things that has really helped us as a country program is partnerships with other affiliates across the world. Oxfam Oxfam, affiliates. Oxfam, yeah, yeah, Oxfam affiliates, Oxfam Great Britain, Oxfam America. Uh, Oxfam, Denmark and other countries as well, who are able to raise both unrestricted and restricted income from trusts and foundations or from home donors who are willing to fund some of the advocacy work. And we've received a lot of funding from the German government, the Danish government and others that are really focused on the influencing element. Uh, so there well are some Europeans exactly. who are willing, European governments who are willing to fund this? To fund that, yes. But not the Brits? Um, even the, the, but the Brits has been because I think we have a, uh, we are not getting funding from FCDO for obvious reasons. Oh, sorry. Whoops. Yeah, but okay. uh, <laughs> but yeah, we've received some funding from from the UK from individual supporters, high net worth individuals as well, foundations as well, to go towards that. But it's not it's not a place where many donors want to put their money. But also because advocacy is a political sensitive issues, many donors don't want to go the wrong way with the government by being seen to fund advocacy that is meant to influence them. Uh, so, so many donors prefer to fund service delivery, distribution of safer. food here. It's much more safer, politically safer, uh, than really addressing the root causes. Uh, but we think um, we, we should be able to mobilize sufficient resources to cover the staff costs, because those are the main resources. Also to cover the resources of some of our networks, the movements we are building uh, here, who are really behind some of the movements, that we should be able to mobilize resources for them to continue doing some of this amazing work. And very briefly, just because I'm fascinated by this, uh, but it has to be quite short, do you raise any money within Kenya? I mean, because it's got big middle class, big shopping malls right next to us, you know, there's lots of rich people in Kenya. Can you, as Oxfam, tap into that money? So it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult conversation, that one, and I think we're having it within the team as well. Partly because we're trying to promote local humanitarian leadership and local leadership by local actors. Uh, a, a few colleagues internally have felt it unfair for us to try to tap from resources locally when instead of supporting our local partners to be able to mobilize those resources. Okay. But we still feel like the cake is enough for everybody else. I think there are other places we can fundraise locally with the institutional donors or home donors for Oxfam uh, elsewhere who are best here like Danida uh, and others to fund some of our work that is targeted at international uh, organizations. Um, but I think we're, we're also thinking probably in future we should op open Oxfam shops. What prevents us from having Oxfam shops here with people giving us their clothes and then we sell them as, as, as OGB, OGB does. And maybe that's something that probably we need to be talking to Oxfam Great Britain about. Uh, that's something we do know how to do. Yes. That's what you do. You do that very well. So we, we, we see there's an opportunity to fundraise locally here, but we want to do it in a way that does not disenfranchise uh, local partners, especially those small ones, because as Oxfam, we'll be coming with our brand identity. We have the fundraising capacity yeah. and experience for many, many years. The we elephant, can easily elbow, the elephant arrives. We can, yes, we can easily elbow local actors uh, from tapping into the resources locally here. But uh, it's it's a balance that we'll, we'll, we'll try to see that we, we, we strike without disenfranchising anybody.
Thank you. John Kitui, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think Oxfam is in good hands. Thank you, Duncan, for having me.